This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. My last semester of school, I set up a Kickstarter and my Kickstarter was literally just, I think someday I have the potential to be a big international designer and this is the first step and I need your help. I got fully funded in a relatively quick amount of time. Kickstarter noticed it, put me on their front page. I got further funded and that's how I was able to build the collection that ended up going to ITFF Studio and Wanted Design. From Living Etc. magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pitt McCormack and welcome back to Season 2 of Home Truths. On the show today, how Innie Archibong used tenacity, a humble attitude and a lack of fear of asking for help to create and grow an international design agency that has created products to such luxury companies as Say and Hermes. I went to a talk about getting ahead in business once and the speaker said the best things she ever learned were how to say no and how to ask for help. I'd admit, I'm pretty rubbish at both, so I couldn't help but be inspired by Innie Archibong's approach. As a gutsy kid, he bowled into an architect's firm and asked for help. They took him off. He asked the internet to believe in him and fund his early design career, which it did. And then, at college, he asked his professor if he would help him realise an ambition to design a watch. The teacher then put him in touch with Hermes to do exactly that. Throughout his career, Innie hasn't been afraid to throw himself at the mercy of the people who can help him make his dreams into a reality. And through sheer force of will and lack of ego, he's been able to work across the world, create furniture and products that are truly breathtaking to behold. His career is thanks in large part to his incredible talent, but it's also down to not being afraid to tell the world what he wants, a trait I feel we can all learn from. I just want to say that we recorded this episode remotely with Innie in the lobby of a hotel in Switzerland. It's pretty quiet for the most part, the Swiss being on lockdown, but there are odd moments of background noise I can only apologise for. He's also drinking a glass of rosé in case you're wondering what the old clinking sound is. For me, it adds to the picture I have of him as a laid-back guy who appreciates the finer things in life. Anyway, before this episode, Innie gave me five milestones from his career which he thinks were key moments and... In explaining the stories behind them, he's going to tell us how he got to where he is today. Beginning with how, growing up in California, he almost took a very different path. I guess uh, in my early life, you know, design, being a designer was never like on my radar as a possibility of a career path. Um, just where I'm from and... and uh, you know, the way that I was brought up, you always imagine that what you're going to do as a career um, has something connected with, you know, what you're doing in academia. You know, my, my parents are engineers. My older brother wanted to be a doctor. We all kind of gravitated toward math and science, but I guess I was the one that on the side really had a penchant for, you know, the creative things. And, um, you know, in retrospect, me being a designer makes complete sense. Um, at the time, all of my creative outlets really just seemed like, uh, you know, hobbies. Nothing, you know, that I took too, well, I took it extremely seriously, but I never thought of it as a career path. 
what sort of um, hobbies were you having at the time? What were you creating? Um, well, when I was when I was really young, you know, it was the same typical things that that a lot of kids are into. You know, I was playing with like micro machines and GI Joes and Legos and all that. But I guess the thing that was different is that I always created like full universes um, for my toys to play in, um, including like the like the architecture and digging up the yard and all that. And then uh, as I got older, you know, and they started to have like arts in the school. Um, the school that I went to for starting when I was 12, Polytechnic, had a very robust arts program. And, you know, we had arts requirements starting at age 12. So that was when um, I started doing pottery um, and woodworking. Those are my first two kind of, the first two times that I was taught, you know, um, that I had a kind of a guide. And I'm still friends actually with the, the art teacher that started me on this path, Stuart Freed. Um, and he became like a mentor for me from age 12 till I was about probably 19. I would still come back and see him, but he taught me uh, how to throw pottery on the wheel. He, I didn't realize it at the time, but he taught me design during woodshop because he would never let me uh, make anything without first sitting down and drawing it in orthographic views and um, you know, clarifying the dimensions and everything the same way that a designer would have to do to make a project. And, you know, I realized when I went to design school how valuable it was to learn that skill when I was 12. But you didn't go to design school straight away, did you? You started off at business school, which, how did that come about? Yeah, um, well, like I said, from the way that I was raised, we really, everything we did was kind of geared toward um, you know, school and athletics. And, you know, my brother uh, was an Ivy Leaguer, my parents. And as far as what I thought my options were, I really thought I didn't consider art to be an option. So um, I had a scholarship. I was a business scholar at uh, USC. And I was studying business because I was good at math. And uh, I wanted to make money. <laughs> and it seemed like the professional career that made sense. Two years in, I, I realized that um, I was more passionate about the money and the trappings of being a banker, especially at that time before the collapse. You, you would have Wolf of Wall Street in your mind when you thought about being an investment banker as opposed to what happened uh, a few years after. How did you come to sort of pivot towards a more creative route then? I guess like when I was young also, probably around age 13, I started experimenting with 3D uh, softwares and Photoshop as just for fun because they had them on the computers in the lab at school. So I taught myself those things and I always in my free time would make, you know, these 3D worlds, you know, usually it was like science fiction stuff and I would just kind of print the renderings and file them away. So while I was in business school, I would skip class quite a bit and uh, the one thing that was consistent was me sitting on the computer and creating these worlds so when i dropped out all i was really doing with my with my time was uh djing and making music and uh, creating this stuff in 3d so my skills got pretty good at that and when it came time for me to you know uh, own up to my parents that i dropped out of school i moved back home and happened on uh, an opportunity where i walked into a 
an architecture an architecture firm. It was just a man standing in front of in front of the countertop drawing, and it said George Architecture outside. And that's when I met uh, Tony George, who then mentored me the next three years. Took me uh, took me in as kind of a, a draftsman apprentice with no experience. All I had was a sketchbook. And the confidence that came from having used 3D programs for a long time. He gave me the opportunity and he taught me drafting and taught me architecture. And that allowed me to put together my portfolio during the course of those three years in order to get into Art Center. And were you applying to an ad that he had placed for looking for an apprentice? Or did you just kind of wander in and, you know, all confident and here I am? I had literally wandered in. So I was living with my folks again. And I would, you know, my mom had me drive her to the grocery store in South Pasadena. So while she was shopping, I was just kind of wandering the streets and I saw him working there and I walked past, you know, the storefront. It was basically a glass storefront next to a tile shop. And, uh, and then I doubled back and I got the courage to just walk in and I just asked him directly. I've had some thoughts about pursuing architecture and like, I'm curious what it takes to be an architect. Like, what do you do? And, uh, <laughs> you know, he, I was interrupting his work. So he uh, kindly let me know that he was in the middle of working, that if I wanted to know that I could show up at the local coffee shop the next day at 7 a.m. before he goes into work. And, uh, and he said, bring your sketchbook with you because I was carrying a sketchbook. So I showed up the next day with my sketchbook. He looked at my very, very terrible drawings and my notes about things I observed from my Tadeo Ando books and Frank Lloyd Wright and me trying to draw some of the things that I saw. And he was impressed that, you know, that I, in the now digital age that I was walking around with a sketchbook and trying to draw by hand. So he gave me a chance. He basically let me uh, learn drafting by redrawing um, the, the studio that he worked in. Um, and, you know, I wasn't worth paying at the beginning. It was just basically like an opportunity to learn. And as I became, you know, valuable as far as being able to help him with drawings, then started paying me. And that began three years of a relationship that was basically me and him, you know, working on residential projects and renovations in South Pasadena. That's so gutsy on both of your behalves that you kind of walked in and that he took a chance on this kid yeah. just did walk in that's amazing yeah. and he also he didn't just take a chance he um he taught me in a very specific way you know he took me on site you know and and showed me like these are the beams that you're drawing when you draw a section you're cutting through you know these walls and you're drawing what's underneath you know all of that stuff and he taught me in a very hands-on kind of old school way. He had me doing as builds where I would just take a, he would give me a tape measure and a sketchbook, send me to a house and I would have to, you know, measure the house and draw the floor plans based on my measurements. And, you know, going through that process set me up with the skills that still give me a lot of advantage to this day. I mean, when I was in school, I was one of the few people that was able to look at a space and in my head turn it into a floor plan you know I'm curious what your parents thought about uh, this because obviously it's not business but it's still very much the practical almost science yeah. end of creativity they were actually at that stage they were 
they were happy about the fact that I, A, I had gotten a job. <laughs> B, um, the architecture was something that, that they could understand. If, you know, it finally went from like, oh, you guys don't understand. I'm an artist. I'm a creative to here's a practical application. And, you know, my dad is an engineer. So I had seen all the drafting equipment growing up. I had like, I'd stolen his like compass sets and his drafting tools when I was a kid and played with them. You know, it's, um, you know, he, he told me that like he had interest in architecture before and everything like that. So I think for them, they started to see that, um, that I wasn't completely lost. And then tell me how you came to be at Bernhard Design. What was that journey? So I went from, from architecture to, you know, when I was at Art Center, the environmental design program is the program that explores architecture and space from the inside out. So you start with the experience and that informs the aesthetics, which then informs the exterior rather than the typical architectural outside in approach where you design a monolithic statement and then fill in programmatically the insides. So because of that, we had to learn like all the different touch points. You know, it's, you didn't just learn how to design a space. You had to learn how to design a doorknob. You had to learn how to design a lamp. You have to design, learn how to design the furniture, um, the wayfinding, the branding. So when going through that curriculum, the first time I took a furniture class, it happened to be the sponsored studio for Bernhardt Design. And um, it was it was the first time that I had gone back to those original roots, you know, that I had done with like Mr. Freed of, you know, sitting down and coming up with a plan to design and build something one-to-one -one scale that's not abstract, you know, it's a real thing. So I was working on that project with my teammates, uh, Stephanie Soccer and John Phillips. And we had teams of three that were designing office furniture with the hope that one of the projects would impress uh, Jerry Helling and um, and that it would potentially go into production. So that was the first entry into furniture. And that was when I really kind of found, um, found my lane, I guess you could say, um, or an avenue to, to expand from. Uh, because through that process, I started looking into what it means to be a furniture designer and that world. Um, I also impressed Jerry Helling with what I was doing. And after the semester, you know, they selected our piece of furniture to go into production. And Jerry saw something in me and, uh, and put me up for the American Design Honors and um, asked me to submit a portfolio. And when I did, uh, uh, and I won that award, then I not only had a table in production with Bernard Design, but in 2010, I was introduced to the design world at ICFF in New York. And, you know, the Bernhardt family took me in and guided me through ICFF, Neocon, the design world, um, like PR, all of the things that go into being an, a designer and hopefully an international designer I got to see you know, from that moment. And I also got to meet other designers that designed for Bernhardt. So Jerry was, you know, somewhat of a mentor figure, which is, you know, also what you had experienced early on in your career. I, I find it really interesting that you sort of seem to um, build a wonderful relationship with a person and they seem to want to help you to, to realise your, your talents. Is that 
Um, I mean, I know it's not something that happens uh, by accident, but also it's not something that you, you necessarily chase. I wonder if that's just, if you see a real value in that kind of mentorship relationship. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's not something that I necessarily chase after, but it's something that I'm aware of and I'm um, cognizant of when it presents itself. So I don't miss, it's important that I don't miss those opportunities when I'm in a situation, because I think what helps me to, to, to engage these people that end up being my mentors. And, and to be honest, my career is like a series of happenstance meetings that ended up in mentorships and support from gatekeepers that have allowed me to get to the point where I'm at today. But um, I think what allowed that to happen is because when I'm in a situation where I recognize that that is a possibility, I'm able to humble myself and put myself into the beginner's mind and forget everything I know and just be open to take the advice and follow the lead of somebody that knows more than me and, you know, um, has the potential to help me advance. And honestly, I think that comes from the the way that I always looked at fantasy, comic books, and this kind of heroism. Like you look at something like Star Wars, there's there's you, there's no Luke Skywalker without Obi Wan Kenobi and Yoda. You know, and that's that's kind of how I've always lived my life is of looking at myself as a hero whenever I'm presented with these people, whether it's Tim Covey from Eight Inc. or if it's Jerry Helling or Terry Crews or any of these people, I go back to kind of Luke Skywalker beginner's mind stage where it's like, okay, what do I have to learn from this situation and where can it go? That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. It was around this time in 2010 that you launched your own design studio designed by Innie. Um, yep. Now, 2010 was a really difficult time because obviously we were still feeling the ramifications of the recession and the, the market crash and all, all the problems there and I would have thought that as somebody who was you know fairly business orientated and had previously been quite money orientated and came from parents with a relatively traditional outlook that you might have thought it would be safer to go into a design practice rather than set up by yourself what was what was going on in your mind around that time well it's not as a uh... It's not as thought out as, as it might seem. Basically, in 2010, I was two years away from graduating. So I was still in school. Um, and what happened was once I got the table picked up by Bernhardt Design in 2010, that was when, like, right before signing the contract, my business mind kicked in. And I was like, well, like, if I'm going to start signing contracts and I'm going to be a professional designer, I need to start an LLC. I need to make some business cards. And I am now, even though I still have two years before I graduate, I am now a professional designer. So before I went to New York for that first trip, I made sure that I established my LLC and that I had business cards that were official. And uh, and I showed up. And instead of introducing myself as Amy Archibong, the student from Art Center who just got a table picked up, I introduced myself as Amy Archibong, professional designer who designs for Bernhardt Design, one of the best design companies in the U.S. You know, so... I just kind of took on the, the position of, you know, regardless of how anybody else might see it in this world of design, the only way that anybody knows me is how I present myself for the first time. So I'm going to present myself as the CEO of a design studio that's so good that it makes furniture for Bernhardt Design. <laughs> and uh, yeah, 
that was that was how, that was why I established it, and I'm glad that I did because then, you know, I had a business vehicle to help me to allow it to allow me to get more contracts and keep growing professionally. And what sort of work was coming your way? Uh, I mean, right at like after the Bernhardt contract, I did um, like a 22 piece collection for Cumberland, another contract furniture company out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. That was a big one for me. I mean, I still collect royalties from that, which is great. And it was happenstance. I mean, I thought about it at the time, but I didn't realize until later on in life how important it was that I managed to establish myself like a royalty income at the very beginning stages of my career. Uh, because, you know, at the times when, when I needed to, you know, focus on, on the next step of building my business or my career, I didn't have to think, oh, God, I have to find a way to pay all these bills. You know, I, I just had to live within the means of, of those royalties. The next one was uh, Newcraft, another contract furniture company out of Grand Rapids. Um, I did a table collection for them that ended up winning a Best of Neocon Award. And I also was doing some, like, branding. It would, that was the beginning of me exploring some, like, brand consultancy stuff. Uh, I was working with musicians, helping them develop their brands. Um, and that was because I was, at the time, I was making, making, producing beats and all that stuff. So I was in the music scene a bit. And, um, you know, started working with a partner, Pat Kelly, who was basically the first uh, outside business person to recognize the potential. And he and I started looking at potentials for investors and things like that at a very early stage, like before I even graduated. Yeah, that was the early business, really. And then self-funding some projects, like doing wanted design and stuff like that. And were you using um, social media very much? Because I imagine, you know, it was, a, it was a new tool at that point. And were you using that to help get your name out? Or what yeah. were you? Yeah. It was a, that was a major part of it. There were a couple of things that I knew that I could bank on. And that was that I was younger than everybody else. Um, so it wouldn't be unexpected. And also because I was younger than everybody else and I hadn't graduated yet and I was about to graduate, I knew that I could rally people behind it's not like an underdog, you know, situation, but it was, it's more like, you know, everybody like cheers for the young guy with potential that's hoping to make it from, from Pasadena, you know? And uh, so Facebook was, was, uh, they started having the professional pages then. So I established that I started using my Facebook a lot to promote, you know, um, all of the different renderings that I was doing of my design concepts and since I was really good at rendering, you know, a lot of people thought that they were real pieces of furniture. Um, and then the big moment was right before I graduated, like my last semester of school, I uh, set up a Kickstarter. And at the time, most Kickstarters were basically selling you something. Uh, the Kickstarter would be like presenting some kind of new thing that if you get in early, then you could be the first one to get this cool product. But my Kickstarter was literally just, I think someday I have the potential to be a big international designer and this is the first step and I need your help. And if you support this Kickstarter, then I will autograph renderings and give you 3D prints of miniature models of my furniture designs. And 
I got fully funded in a relatively quick amount of time. Kickstarter noticed it, put me on their front page. I got further funded, and that's how I was able to build the collection that ended up going to ITFF Studio and Wanted Design in 2012. Wow. How much had you asked for on Kickstarter? Do you remember? I think we asked for 10000 and raised probably close to fifteen. Wow. if I remember correctly. And um, and it was it was I think it was different because you didn't see anything on Kickstarter that didn't have where people didn't feel like they were purchasing something. And with this, it was really just like if you put money into this, you're just supporting it because you believe in my talent, you know. And we had like a very professionally shot video that a friend Ryan, you know, Harley came through and uh, was able to do for us. He was a professional um, videographer and. You know, so it looked super professional, and I just talked about my vision of furniture, the future, design, all of those things. And we we had film of like the three D printer working, and in two thousand and you know eleven, two thousand twelve, that was like something not a lot of people were familiar with. And to be honest, like I don't I don't even know, but I'm sure some of those people, if they've been following design or following my career. They probably feel pretty justified about the 50 bucks that they donated that helped to kickstart my career. It's that brilliant confidence again um, that you displayed all those years ago walking into the architecture firm. It's again just that self-belief that you can do this. I wonder if that self-belief has ever wavered, especially around these early, this early years when you were just sort of setting out or whether you always knew you were on this path to success. Um, I mean, to be honest, there was the there was like a very critical time where it wavered and it wavered to such a degree that um, it was like the darkest period of my life. And it was uh, during that time that, that I dropped out of school that I was pretty lost. Um, I didn't really see much of a future for myself uh, actually. And the only way that I was able to come out of that was by um, coming to the conclusion that, you know, either I am the, lowest scum of the earth that I felt like I was at that moment or I'm the exact opposite and I have a destiny of greatness like all of the heroes that I've you know grown up idolizing and reading about in comic books and fantasy stories and I had the choice I knew in that moment I had the choice of which one to believe either I'm going to believe I'm the scum of the earth or I'm going to believe that everything I've experienced is part of this journey to make me you know an ultimate hero that's here to benefit you know everyone around me and it was a choice, really. It was like, well, I'm going to choose to believe the latter because if I don't believe the latter, then the train stops here. Um, so I went with the latter, and that's the confidence that has like, carried me since I was 19 years old. I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about Harlequin, the high fashion fabric and wallpaper brand that takes inspiration for texture, colour and patterns from the catwalk straight into your home. Jump into Harlequin's book of little treasures, a magical collection of fabric and wallpaper, new for 2020. To find out more, follow Harlequin on Instagram at harlequinfw for inspiration and links to their innovative digital design book. Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. And so I'm curious to know how you then ended up in, in Europe. Um... That's a, so first I went to Singapore. <laughs> um, when I graduated, again, a mentor, um, Tim Covey, founder, founder and CEO of 8 Inc., the 
creator of the Apple Store branding and just overall kind of design genius. He, uh, I interned for for him every every two semesters. I would take a semester off and I would go intern for Eight Inc. while I was in school. And um, you know, he again again it was like another situation where somebody believed in me despite the fact that you know it was a risk to believe in me and then provided me with like tools and opportunity to evolve myself um he put me on projects that probably an intern you know shouldn't have have that much uh responsibility to take on when i was in the new york office you know i did the entire 3d model basically for uh submission for a museum project things like that where I would the times that he would come into the office, even if he spoke to me for like ten minutes, the insights would carry me, you know, for a while. So when I graduated, and he offered me the opportunity to work directly with him in Singapore, I jumped at the opportunity. And after I graduated, I did two two contracts for my own company, and then got on a plane to Singapore. Lived in Singapore working for, for Aid Inc. for about two and a half years and uh, realized that, you know, there was more for me to learn in another area, that other area being luxury, because I think I identified at that point that the opportunity to have a long lasting effect on the world and on people was going to reside in the space where um, things do not become obsolete. So they have a lasting power. And that to me was luxury. It wasn't about the price point or anything like that. It's about the fact that that's the space where things were still crafted by hand and still had an emotional value that would not allow people to throw them away like they throw away cell phones. Um, So that's really what brought me to Switzerland was starting to feel that way, starting to do my research about the business potential of entering into that field, realizing that um, the school ICAL in Lausanne had a -a one-of-a-kind program where they um it was a masters of luxury that worked with like top luxury brands as as basically clients for your projects and so i applied and once i once i got in and came to switzerland and started going to school there i haven't left since and then in 2016 you designed the secret garden capsule collection for amen and amen which was shown at saloni satellite now saloni is obviously the big furniture fair that happens in milan every year you know, yeah. in, in happier times anyway, uh, where, you know, the whole design world descends on Milan and everybody shows their furniture, their latest products. And then there are all these offshoots. I'm assuming Sony Satellite is a like an offshoot for for younger designers, maybe. Is it? Is that what it is? No. Well, actually, Satellite is like a, it's within the Salone del Mobile Furniture Fair. Right. So there's like in Milan, there's all of the design happening in Milan. And then there's the actual furniture fair at the fairgrounds. And at the furniture fair at the fairgrounds, there's a section called Satellite that's run by Marva Griffin, another um, eventual mentor or gatekeeper that that helped propel my career. And um, Marva set this up for for that exact purpose, to to give young talent an opportunity to showcase their own prototypes and work in the professional space next to all of the big brands and have your own booth, you know? So I had a booth and, you know, B&B Italia also has a booth and we're in the same place. So anybody that's coming to look at all that other furniture, they get to walk through this space and discover young talent. And 
there's been like a history of top name international designers that got their start when they presented for the first time in Milan at Salone Satellite. So I determined pretty early on because of the advice I got from one of my mentors at school, Corey Grosser, who was my furniture teacher. He, he said that, you know, that the goal as a young designer is to get to Satellite, show something that is going to catch the attention of the, um, the creative directors of the design brands and the contracts will come. So my goal was to make it to Satellite and when Terry Crews showed up and, uh, you know, presented me with the opportunity to do a collection that he would fund, um, that's what made sense. I was like, well, this is going to be my international design debut and Satellite is the place to do it. And I mean, it was, the collection is just so beautiful. Um, I've just sort of been reminding myself of it by mm. going back looking at the pictures and it's, it, it, the colours are so incredible and it definitely is just as much sculpture and art as it is design. How did it come to being? I mean, so the, the funny thing is it was the first time that, it was the first time that I didn't have to design for anybody else. Um, so one of the, the things that was amazing about the opportunity Terry presented me is that um, he was very clear that he didn't want me to design for him. He didn't want me to design for anybody. He said very clearly and directly, what do you want to make? And I'm just going to support you making it. You know, and nobody had ever put that in front of me before. So I had always done a good job of understanding brands, you know, taking all the stuff that I learned working at Aid Inc., um, and an art center to understand the brand that I'm designing for the client and to design something that has a piece of me and my artistry, but ultimately was going to fulfill their desires. And with this project for Satellite, Terry was like, you're the only one that needs to be satisfied by this. And I'm, and he was clear that it wasn't his support wasn't going to be dependent on him liking whatever I make. So it became a person, a very personal project where, um, it was the first time that I got to really mine my own personal mythology to come up with uh, pieces that would inspire in exactly the way that I hoped that I would be an inspiration in my career. And, you know, it, it took me from being known for doing contract furniture that ends up in offices to entering a space where art and design start to co-mingle in narrative and message you know, and all these things start to stand side by side with the physical object. And did you meet anybody here that became important to your next steps with, you know, any press or any other designers? Or... That's, I mean, that was the beginning stages of, of the career as, as it is now. So again, Marva being who she is, she's, she's very well connected and she's also uh, very supportive. So she brought, you know, different manufacturers around. Um, she brought the, the CEO of Kundalini Lighting um, and we ended up doing a project like directly afterward. Lapisita came and that's how I ended up doing the marble collection with them. Um, it was that collection that Pablo from Say actually saw that that made him want to work with me. Um, and you know, that's, that's just a few of it, the things, I mean, it's also the projects, the pieces that I did there made it so that when I went to talk to companies like Hermes, you know, I, I wasn't just showing them office tables. I was showing them stuff that came from my soul that allowed them to realize or recognize that 
um, I would be capable of putting soul into the products that I'm going to make for them, which is what is important in the realm of luxury and art. Yeah, because in 2019, you did design this watch for Hermes, and it, it mm. feels like a bit of a different direction for you. But I was going to ask how that sort of came about. Did you pitch to them? Did they come to you? How, how did it happen? Uh, I pitched to them, but it was a, I found out later on that it was a little bit of both. So the I I was I've always been interested in doing a watch or doing watches. Uh, I love watches um, as a design object and as like a personal branding object and all those things. Um, and I also really love Hermes as a brand to me. Uh, when I decided to, to study luxury, uh, most of what I studied was Hermes, you know, and how they became what they became and what makes them such a special brand. So when I graduated from ECAL, I talked to my the director of my program and I let him know if there were opportunities related to watchmaking that I would be interested. And um, he gave me the contact for the creative director of Le Montre Hermes, which is the, the watch division of Hermes. And I emailed him to have a coffee. I didn't know that that he had also come to the school inquiring about talented uh, designers that he could meet and that uh, the same you know, director had told him that he should probably talk to me. So we, um, we, I sent the, the initial email and we met for a coffee and it really was just honestly just like fantasy from that point on, I guess you could say. Um, you know, by the end of our meeting, you know, very some very key questions were asked. He asked, have you ever designed a watch? I said, no. <laughs> he asked, uh, what, like, asked about my plans for the future. Also, mind you, this was, he doesn't really speak English and I don't speak any French. So we deduced all of these things from hand gestures, <laughs> um, broken French and broken English and uh, pointing at things. <laughs> and so... By the end of our conversation, he was impressed by my book, Full of Furniture and Poetry. I left it with him, and he said, if you come up with any cool watch ideas, you know, send them along. So that began our relationship, and while I was working on the project, he mm -hmm. saw a talent in me, he believed in it, and he took a risk. And... Um, when I came through with my first proposal, I think it was enough to let him know that I had what it took to, to design, you know, a watch. So then from that point, he started to guide me in the right directions um, in terms of like what to think about, what are concerns when you're working at that small of a scale, what's possible and impossible, you know, and all those things. And the outcome was, was him guiding and teaching me into designing, you know, the watch that ended up uh, launching last year. So much of what you've achieved has started because you've not been afraid to put yourself out there, either to tell people what you want or to ask for people to help you get what you want. And I think mm -hmm. that's really refreshing to see because I personally find that to be something I'm not very good at and to be quite difficult to do. And I think mm -hmm. your lack of ego, I suppose, to, to ask people for help has led you to some incredible situations and opportunities. Yeah. I mean, and, and honestly, a lot of those, a lot of the, some of those times it's like, 
it didn't even require me to ask if that makes sense it was just merely like the universe presented a situation and i recognized it as what i believed it to be you know it's a chicken or an egg thing right it like did these good things happen because they were destined to happen or did they happen because i thought they were destined to happen and i treated them like they were part of my destiny <laughs> i i just always treated it like it's part of my destiny so when I go to meet, you know, the creative director of Hermes watches and he says, have you ever designed a watch? I don't sheepishly say, no, I've never designed a watch. I'm very confident in saying, like, I've never done it before, but I'm sure that I can, you know. And and then, you know, people have these gatekeepers and these uh, mentors and the people that have catalyzed my my path. I think they, they see something and, and I like it's not just empty confidence i also like have like kind of an undying and untiring work ethic which can become unhealthy obviously but i'm not going to stop until i'm until i'm executing something at the level to which i i know it needs to be you know considered at the top level of my craft i'm i'm curious to ask as well like obviously the circles and the industry that you move in is predominantly historically white um is this is your blackness something that you have found marks you out as a point of difference in as a hindrance or a help or in any way at all? Uh, I think at different times it's been, it's had the potential to be both. Um, and I think that because of the way that I grew up and because of um, the way that I had to straddle different, uh, I guess you could say, um, cultural niches of american just of america period i know exactly who i am and i know where i come from um i also understand the perspective of people that come from you know very different place so um my ability to navigate that has i think made it so that i've avoided some of the really potential negatives that could come from that situation and i've been able to take advantage of the positive um, potentialities that have presented themselves. Um, I think one thing that is undeniable is that it's never comfortable to be the only one anywhere. Um, it's never comfortable to stick out like a sore thumb. It's never comfortable for to be in a place where people don't understand you culturally and like say and do things that they might think are normal that might not realize put you in an awkward position. And these are all things that I've always had to deal with being in the design world. Um, and then also being in the luxury world. But I think that uh, like any, likening it again to any hero's journey or any story of a protagonist, all of the experience leading up to any situation were the experiences that were preparing the hero to excel in that situation. And I've always looked at it that way. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the first time, entering the design world was not the first time that I've been in all white space and been the only one that stuck out like a sore thumb. That was the case when I started, you know, at the prep school that I went to when I was 12. That was the case when, you know, I landed at Art Center in the environmental design program and I was the only one. You know, it's, it, I've, I've been through it, I've experienced it, and I've known how to navigate it. So when it came to the design world and the luxury world, because I had this very clear objective, um, I wasn't going to let that stand in my way. But I'm not going to pretend like it was comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And now you have uh, your part of an exhibition at the Design Museum in London. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. 
Oh, this is this is an interesting one. Um, this was like the second time that I I was put in a position where they said design something for yourself. Um, so this project was, uh, I guess, about about the COVID experience and how things are changing and the new ways of working. And, you know, the brief was really design a work table based on what you've been experiencing while being in lockdown. And um, for me, there are a few things that stood out about the lockdown experience um, as things that like both positives and negative. But um, one of the major things was the importance of uh, that that out being outside and nature plays in my creativity. One, uh, two, um, you know, like I have a three-year-old daughter, and you know the importance of her role in my life and my role in her life in helping to uh, hopefully facilitate her maintaining her sense of imagination for as long as possible. When I went into designing the table, it became an outdoor table with elements that were inspired by the way that she and I play uh, that would allow me to work while she was simultaneously playing. And so the tabletop has brass uh, blocks, basically, that she can pull out of the table and start building because she loves playing with blocks. And the base of the table is... It appears to be like an assemblage of, of wooden blocks pulled together in resembling like a basalt rock uh, outcropping, similar to like a, a giant's causeway. And all of it pulled together to look like a cartoonified tree. <laughs> wow. Well, the, um, at, at time of recording, you know, museums are still open in the UK and, and this exhibition is on until middle of October. So there's still yeah. time to go and for people to go and see that. Um, Inid, I have a question that I like to ask all my guests, which I would like mm -hmm. to ask you. Um, I wonder if you've ever had a master plan and, and if, you, if you have, how close you are to it at the moment. Uh, I've been living my master plan since I was 19 years old. So, yeah, I think um, I think. My master plan was in the plan of my own devising. Um, I mean, it might sound strange, but you know, the very kind of crucial moment where, uh, where I decided uh, how important it was for me to live and do what I'm doing. Uh, I think that that opened me up to the ability to at least contemplate the potential future that would come if I was right about my decision. And I've been following that ever since. And to be honest, like right now we're at a ten year we're at the ten year mark from from when I started my professional career and I'm basically exactly where I envisioned that I would be ten years from that moment. Well listen, we're gonna move on to the very last section now, the home truths section, which is mm -hmm. quick fire round of questions. So okay. you, you can take as long as you want to answer them, that's fine. But I'm gonna ask ask the questions quickly. So okay. Um, do you read novels? And if you do, what's one that you would recommend? Um, I haven't read a novel in a really long time. I read every day. I tend to read spiritual nonfiction. Um, so the book that I'm currently reading is called Vasista's Yoga. Uh, it's a Hindu mythological 700-page parable about 
the um, about literally the what makes the universe the universe. <laughs> That's what I'm reading. It's it's not a novel, but it's kind of like it's a story. So it's kind of a novel. Okay. What do you enjoy most about living in Switzerland? Uh, the peace and quiet in the lake. Yeah, because you literally live like right on a lake in the mountains, don't you? Yeah, I live on a lake with the mountains behind on the other side of the lake. And what do you miss most about California? Uh, black people. <laughs> no. I miss my, my friends and family. <laughs> are, there, are there any young designers you spotted whose work that you find interesting? Uh, yeah, and I'm trying to snatch all of them up to work for me. <laughs> oh, um, you're hoarding them for yourself I see <laughs> I, I will say uh, in response to that question there are two young designers that impressed me the most their names are Maxwell Engelman and Jory Brown and these two designers are definitely designers that you're going to hear a lot from in the future uh, and they currently work with me um, in Elemento Creative uh, Jory Brown graduated probably about three or four years ago from Art Center. Uh, Maxwell Engelman graduated, I think, last year from Art Center as well. Um, and Maxwell is trained as a car, boat, and plane designer. And Jory is trained as an environmental designer like myself. Great. And lastly, where can people engage with your work or perhaps find you on social media or find you on the internet or what's the best so, way? So I have, uh, I intentionally don't have a designer's web page. I just have a splash page. So you can go to my web page if you need my email address. But um, if you want to engage with my work, you should go to my Instagram at Eni Archibong. Um, and other than that, if you just Google Eni Archibong, you'll see the work that I do for other companies on their web pages. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ine. Uh I mean, it was amazing to hear you talk. Just, just really, really fascinating. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pitt McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin the premier destination for inspirational design and colour.